a class on Ezekiel. That's a joke. Uh, we're beginning a class on practical Christianity, although there's lots that is practical in Ezekiel. Uh, we are beginning a class on practical Christianity. Uh, I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're going to get into our discussion today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you have made us your people, and we thank you that as your people you call us to work in your kingdom. Uh, you have told us uh, that uh, if we abide in you, you will produce fruit in us. And so as we study together through this semester, through uh, this fall, uh, we pray that that's what you would be doing. We have uh, studied all summer the fruits of the Spirit, and now as we turn our minds to consider how to put some of those fruits in practice in our daily lives, we pray that you would be with us, that you would go before us. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us uh, to think deeply and, uh, and uh, to put ourselves to work as you work in us by your Holy Spirit uh, so that we would be your people in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so today we're beginning a session on practical Christianity, and you can see that the title of this first session is A Theology of Christian Living. Um, you may not put those two things together, uh, practical and theology. Um, for us, a lot of times, theology is something that is all about our heads. Uh, and if any of the classes this semester are about our heads, today is it. Uh, and I don't mean uh, Brian and Noah back there. I mean the, you know, the noggins on, on top of your uh, top of your neck. Uh, so we are going to talk a little bit today. We're, we're going to be doing theology, and what that means when we're doing theology is that we're going to look at a lot of scriptures, and we're going to try and see what uh, the Lord has to say for us about, uh, about Christian living. And that's why I've done the slideshow, because we're going to have lots and lots of Bible verses. Uh, I know some of you will be tempted to take pictures uh, just hold on. If you want my slides, I'll share them with you later, uh, and you can relax and just take in, and we're just going to look at a lot of scripture today uh, and hopefully think together about what it means to, uh, to live practically as believers. So we're going to start um, with a little bit of scripture because I am useless. Font <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I, was, I was getting a really hard time before you all showed up. Um, by a certain deacon in blue trousers who will remain nameless uh, about the size of my font. So if you can't see these things, move up. Uh, that's, that's what we'll do. There's the first few rows. Good. Brian, Brian's good. Brian's good. All right. Uh, so a few, <laughs> thanks Dave, uh, a few texts to get us started today because uh, I'm useless if the scripture isn't, uh, isn't guiding our teaching. Romans 12, verses 1 to 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea here there is that, uh, that worship is not just about something that we do on Sundays. Uh, when we sit between the call to worship and the benediction, it's not just something that happens for 90 minutes a week, but it's something that we do with all of ourselves through all of our lives, through, through every day that we interact with the world around us. So we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, a continual sacrifice that keeps on being sacrificed, uh, that, that isn't killed and, and given over. And then James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
And so again, this reminder that, uh, that it's not just about head knowledge, it is about putting our faith into action. So uh, outline for today, where we're going, three points. The first one's gonna be quick. What are we studying this semester? Uh, why do we need it and how do we do it pretty quickly? Uh, again, fall semester, this is going to be a topical study. Uh, it's gonna be focused on issues of daily Christian living. The idea is to be intensely practical and that means we're gonna be working through several topics. Now here's the one that's maybe too small for you to see. Uh, here are some potential topics. I say potential because we haven't narrowed down the entire schedule yet. Uh, I'll be the main teacher for this time together, but we're also going to have our elders, each of our elders come and teach at least one class. And then we're going to end with Landon, who is one of our elder candidates, teaching a series of two classes on family worship. Uh, but before we get to that, we're going to talk about things like Christians and secular work, uh, Mike Lee has signed up to teach about sexual purity in our over-sexualized world. Uh, we might talk about biblical financial management, conflict resolution, controlling the tongue. Uh, I'm really hoping that one of our elders is going to talk about enduring sickness and suffering, uh, because so far my endurance of sickness and suffering is pretty theoretical, and I would love to have one of our elders who has been through some of those things uh, talk about that and lead us through that. We'll talk about hospitality, we might talk about media consumption, moderation in food and drink. Quite frankly, we have no idea who's going to lead that one uh, and no idea who might actually be qualified uh, to lead such a class. Um, but these are some of the things we're working on. And as you look at that list of text, you might think to yourself, wow, he chose all the softball questions. Uh, there are some really burning questions in our culture, things that we engage with in our daily lives that are not on that list, and so what we're going to do is also take a few congregational suggestions. We're going to leave one or two classes, depending on the feedback that we get. So maybe you're sitting here today as we go through some of these things and you're thinking, you know, uh, all that looks good, but what I really wanna know is how do I, uh, as, a, as a teacher in a secular college, deal with the increasing wokeness of our culture? Uh, or how do you deal with uh, some of the ethnic tensions that are happening in our country? Or what do we think about uh, advocating for the unborn? Any, any number of practical Christian issues. If there's a hot button topic that comes to your mind, come and talk to me, come and talk to an elder and say, I really think this is something that we need some biblical direction on. And the goal is to make it intensely practical uh, and to learn how to put our faith into action. All right, uh, so that brings us to number two. Why do we need this sort of class? And I'm really excited because I'm going to use today uh, the nerdiest joke that I have. Uh, it is an illustration. You know that I like to use illustrations that are so obscure they connect with absolutely nobody. So this is that illustration. Uh, I've tried to work it into sermons for years and I've just never had the, the opportunity. So uh, here's the illustration. Uh, it is said, uh, that, uh, that Soren Kierkegaard once asked uh, George Friedrich Hegel for directions to a barber shop, and all he got in return was a map of Copenhagen. I told you it was a bad joke. Um, so here's, here's the background behind that. Uh, and uh, you know, here's why we're starting with such an obscure reference. The reason we're starting with such an obscure reference is if you're the kind of person who got that reference, you're probably the kind of person who needs a class on practical Christianity. Uh, if you're so into these sorts of things and ideas of the mind, you may be one of these Christians who tends more toward a sort of philosophical view of the faith rather than a practical application of it. 
Uh, so the background on that. That handsome looking guy on the left there, uh, that's Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher uh, in the 19th century. And uh, that crotchety looking old guy on the right is a German philosopher by the name of Hegel. And uh, they are sort of representative of two separate camps of philosophy. I'm going to talk super high level because that's all the grasp I have of these things. I hope that somebody later will take me aside and say, yeah, actually, it's, it's this, and, and you got it all wrong. But here's my understanding. Uh, Kierkegaard was the founder or the, the guiding light of what we know as existentialism. It's a philosophical worldview or a philosophical approach that looks for meaning and value based on the experience of the individual. You start with your, your flow through life, what happens, what you experience, what you encounter, and you extrapolate out to make sense of all those things. It's sort of a, a street-level philosophy. Uh, Kierkegaard was a Christian, and his writings are Christian writings, and he was trying to make sense of, of his faith and his life by what he experienced, but existentialism later got hijacked. Uh, probably the most famous existentialist philosopher is Nietzsche, uh, who starts from his own experience, right, and, and ends up saying God is dead and we've killed him. That's the experience. Existentialism comes all the way if it's unguided, goes into post-modernity, uh, where everything's relative because you've got your experience and I've got my experience and that's okay. Uh, so that is a sort of street-level, uh, ground-up kind of approach to the world. On the other side uh, is Hegel, and he's known for his system of idealism. Uh, this is almost the exact opposite, right? So this is, uh, Hegel thought that, that meaning and value uh, and, and understanding the world around him came from the top down, what he called das Absolut, and you don't have to know any German to know what he's talking about. Uh, we, we might sometimes hear it called a... a um, uh, what is it, the, the phrase, the unified theory of everything, right? So to know anything, you have to know how it fits into this overarching ideal of, of perfect things. And so to really arrive at meaning and understanding, you don't engage with the world around you. You just in, in, uh, sort of enter in this kind of rationalistic thought process and thought experiment uh, to consider what is, what is best and ideal. And so there's the reference there. Uh, Kierkegaard says, I just want to get a haircut, and all Hegel can give me is a map of Copenhagen. It's so big that it's virtually help, uh, not very helpful at all uh, for getting to the things that we actually need. And so you can also think of it as a sort of tree versus forest. Uh, Hegel is, uh, is the forest guy. He wants to look at the big picture, uh, and Kierkegaard is the tree guy. He wants to get down uh, to what's happening with the individual. Uh, with the individual. Uh, now, why I bring this up, uh, and, and again, uh, if you're the kind of person who already knew all these things, uh, you might need exactly this class. I bring this up because um, this, uh, and, and by this I mean uh, Hegel's idealism, uh, this is a trap that we, specifically Reformed Presbyterian Christians, can fall into. Uh, we contend, as we talk about um, not in philosophy. Uh, I'm, I'm shifting gears a little bit now because uh, I see a couple people furrowing brows and saying, what do you mean? Um, we contend as we get together and as we go through our studies and as we sit together as, uh, as pretty put together, pretty, uh, pretty educated uh, middle class folks, we contend toward the speculative and we contend toward the things that are just talking about theories and ideas and we can tend to hide behind our theology as though 
knowing theology gives us a pass on actually living out our theology. So let's change the metaphor a little bit. Uh, instead, of, uh, instead of idealism and existentialism, we can think of it as maybe a, a difference between doctrine and practice. Reformed folks love doctrine. That's a really good thing, actually. Uh, and, and if we have no doctrine, we, we have no basis for knowing how to practice in the world. Uh, but you may remember that when Steve Barry went through Romans last year, uh, and the year before because of COVID, when Steve Barry went through Romans, he stopped at the end of every class and he said, now let's apply it. And that's what we need to do. Because especially in something like Romans, where we're talking about theological concepts, doctrines, we're talking about justification and, and sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit and all these other things, we can tend sometimes to think of those things in really detached categories. Uh, and, and there are other camps of Christianity that focus an awful lot on practice, but don't focus so much on doctrine. Right? And so there's, there's a sense of knowing ourselves and knowing the bent that we have. And I think in our church and in our circles, we tend more to the forest than we do to the trees. Um, and so scripture calls us to direct simple obedience. We get fixated on theology. Uh, we sometimes find it more stimulating, uh, sometimes less demanding to engage in speculation. You may recall the class that I did uh, in fact, where I used this, uh, the opening for the slide presentation years ago, we did a class on evangelism. And my promise at the beginning of the class was, we're going to give you some practical things you can put into, uh, into place in your life when you, when you engage in believers around you, or, or unbelievers around you, when you engage uh, with your neighbors and, and folks in your community. And at the end, uh, people were like, hey, hey, where were all those practical things? And, and I owned that, right? I, I, fell short on doing that. Uh, but when you think about what we're doing in, in life and in, in the world, uh, our, our doctrine should always feed into our practice. Our practice should always be based on our doctrine. Here's a pretty convenient example of that from what we've been studying recently. Uh, that is, and I, I realized after I put this together that I should have flip-flopped Doctrine should be on the left, because we're going to be starting with doctrine and then moving to practice in the next few slides. So start by reading on the right. Here is uh, this statement at the end of Galatians, Galatians 5.25. We were talking about the fruit of the Spirit all summer long. Uh, and at the end of that section, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, that's a doctrine. That, that's a, a calling to uh, understand what the Spirit is doing. But it's kind of abstract. In fact, it's it's put in a metaphor. Uh, and so we might look at that and say, well, what does that look like? And then Paul immediately tells us how to put that in place. Well, don't become conceited. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. And brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so it's not enough just to sit around and say, well, we're keeping in step with the Spirit. What we have to do is say, well, how are you keeping in step with the Spirit? What does that look like? What does it look like in the church of the Galatians? And it might look a little different in the church of Redeemer than it looked in the church of Galatians because you remember there were these factions, right? And there were the Judaizers and there was, there was Cephas together with some of the others and they were refusing to eat with the Gentiles because they thought with their Jewish heritage they were a little bit better. And so there were these factions happening in the church and Paul says, in your situation, here's what keeping in step with the Spirit will look like. It will look like not being conceited. 
not envying one another, not feeling and, and acting as though, well, this person might have better or more than I do. And so it really comes down to how you engage in relationships in the church, right? So there's this doctrine. We've got to keep in step with the Spirit, and there's this practice. Uh, that's a convenient example, maybe not the best one. Uh, and again, we're looking at a lot of text today. There's a lot of information coming this way. If you want to ask anything, you want to interrupt me, please do. Uh, raise your hand. I'll, I'll call on you if you have a, if you have a question. Here's maybe a better example, and we think of it uh, firstly in, in you know, the first practical act of our faith, and that is believing in Jesus Christ. Here's a doctrine uh, which is true, but is very large. This is the forest, right? This is the worldwide scope of the gospel. John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He is teaching gospel truth. He's giving him wonderful, excellent doctrine. God loves the world. God sent the Son into the world, and those that believe on Jesus will be saved. But you could understand all of those things and never put it into practice and be none the better for it. And so what's the practice of that doctrine? Well, one example shows up in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. How do you put that doctrine into practice? Well, you believe in Jesus. Right? That's the action that corresponds to it. And so that's sort of building a, a foundation of, of the first act of our faith. But we could look at other examples. Again, look at the right side first, doctrine. Now here's Hebrews talking about faith and the way that, that faith is lived out. And I'm, uh, I'm taking the first verse of Hebrews 11, the first two verses of Hebrews 12, I'm leaving out that great cloud of witnesses in, in between. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What's the doctrine? Well, the doctrine is that we must live by faith and not by sight. We have to look at the things that we haven't seen yet. We have to press on in faithfulness after the Lord. But what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality. Remember those in prison. Remember those that are mistreated. Let marriage be held in honor. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. This is street level, uh, everyday experience. You, you, you think about your marriage and, and your relationship with your spouse. You think about your attachment to worldly things. This is what it means. This is what it looks like on a practical level, not to, uh, to look only at the things that are seen, but to set our minds on the things that are unseen. One more example, and then I'll ask you for some examples to be thinking about other places in Scripture where you see this dynamic. Uh, one more example, Exodus chapter 19. Uh, this is uh, the Lord speaking from Mount Sinai. He's brought the people out of Egypt, and as he promised, he said, I will bring you to myself, and you will worship me on this mountain. And he gives them the, the sort of overall view of what's happening. He says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the question regarding to that doctrine is, well, what does that look like? How can we keep God's commandments? How can we keep his covenant? How can we be holy in the midst of a nation of unholy peoples? How can we be a kingdom of priests? That is uh, a sort of touch point for the presence of God. That's what it meant for the uh, the people in the Old Testament to be a kingdom of priests, that every nation around them, uh, we see in Deuteronomy, they didn't have the law of God, they didn't have his commandments and his holy ordinances, but he set a people in the presence of all of those around them to, to show the rest of the world what God was like. And he said, well, how do I do that? Well, good, Exodus chapter 20. We're not going to read all of them, but it's the Ten Commandments. It's the Decalogue. God gives his law in very specific things. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And it seems maybe a little bit uh, detached, maybe a little bit ethereal, but that's ground level, everyday, practical Christianity. To serve the Lord our God, to worship the Lord our God, to honor our parents, uh, not to covet all the other things, right? So we see this dynamic over and over and over again in Scripture, where we've got spiritual truth, and it's almost as though God is not content to let us just think about that spiritual truth and not put it into practice. He's always giving us doctrine and then giving us, well, what should we do with this doctrine? What should it look like in our daily lives? And so what are some other places in Scripture you can think of where the same dynamic shows up? Dave? Dave? Absolutely. Yeah, so Cornelius, Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, this vision of the sheet, all the unclean animals, and then rise and eat. And then the next thing you know is he's not really talking about kosher foods, though that's an application. It's about going to the home of a Gentile and sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And there is a practical application, right? And Peter has this vision, these people show up, and he goes, well, I guess I'm going to go with you. How do I apply this teaching that God has just given me? Good. Other places in Scripture. Kathy. Yeah. Yeah, so many of the ethical imperatives in Scripture. Right? Um, so love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Well... Love is a good term, isn't it? That's a good Christian, bible churchy term. We, we want to love the Lord. We want to love one another. Uh, but love is seen in the way that we treat one another. It, it is uh, a feeling and an affection. We ought to have uh, you know, warm, affectionate thoughts for God and all that he's given to us. We ought to delight in him. But it shows up as we uh, order our lives according to his commandments, as we share his love with those who are around us. Absolutely. I saw another hand. Landis. Sure. Um, 
Paul does that, Peter also does that in his epistles, where they give these general, and then they say, all right, husbands and wives, this is what it looks like. Fathers and children, this is what it looks like. Slaves and masters, this is what it looks like. And it's a very intentional running through, how do we apply this gospel truth in every specific area of our life so that we don't take this doctrine and just put it over in this little box on our, on our, uh, our theoretical shelf and say, that's nice to think about and look at sometimes. Yeah. I saw Chris and then back to Rob and then Scott. Elders bringing the big guns. I like that example of eating meat sacrificed to idols um, because as we get into the New Testament, that is one of the places that people read that. And if you're not really well-versed in Scripture, you sort of, your eyes glaze over. It's like, it's like the New Testament equivalent to the genealogies. Well, actually, the genealogies are the New Testament equivalent to the genealogies because there are some of those in the New Testament as well. But you, you read about food sacrificed to idols and you look at your culture and you go, that doesn't mean anything to me, Right? Uh, until you walk into the Thai restaurant and Buddha's there and they have the Fanta with the straw, but that's another thing. Um, but we read that and we say, well, what am I supposed to do with it? And, and you're exactly right. Paul will come back and say, well, here's how you apply it. And in that situation, he says, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I won't eat meat ever again. Right? It, it's not just about what do we think, what's our theological position on the, the reality of idols. It's about how does our living out that theology affect those people around us in the Jerusalem Council, right? Um, where where the, they don't want to give offense as the gospel's going out. And so there are things that really might not be binding, um, but, but they want to bind them, right? They, they want to say this is good practice as you go forth so as not to give offense, right? And there, there are some moral imperatives there, sexual immorality, but things that are strangled, um, you know, that's offensive to the Jewish community as the gospel's going out, and there's a way to, to apply these things. Good, I saw Rob, and then I saw Scott. like I thought about it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Almost all of Paul's letters, well, not almost all, 
Um, some of the more general of Paul's letters, like Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, they have this dynamic where Paul moves from expounding doctrine to applying doctrine. Uh, and it gets increasingly more specific as you go through, even the dynamic between Romans 12 and Romans 14. Right? Romans 12 is applying all the doctrine of Romans 1 to 11, but in a kind of general way. He applies it to the church and he applies it to our relationships. And then it's Romans 14 where he talks about the weaker and the stronger brother. And, and it comes in these sort of uh, descending levels of applicability to what's actually happening in the community of believers. So we see that, absolutely. Good. And then, Scott, you had the, the last comment here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we had a, uh, an exam yesterday at Presbytery, and it's one of the classic questions uh, that, uh, that men get when they're being examined for ministry. And it was explained the, the difference in language between Romans discussing uh, justification by faith and James discussing justification by faith. Uh, and we won't go into all of that now, but there is an application in the idea that faith uh, is never alone, that, that a real and lively faith, and James says, well, you say you have faith without works, show me your faith, and I'll show you my works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. There is a, a point at which the, the faith shows up in living color in, in front of people. Good. Uh, so we see this all over Scripture, right? Constantly, the, the Scripture is pushing us to think more and more about putting our faith into practice. And here's a plug where I'm going to connect a little bit um, between what we're studying in Sunday school and what we're about to start studying in the sermon series. Uh, and my suggestion is that there's the same dynamic uh, between doctrine and practice in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Now, as you look at that, you may think, wait a minute. Proverbs is awfully practical, <laughs> right? Lots and lots and lots of practical wisdom. And that's true. Uh, and practical wisdom in Ecclesiastes as well. But as you, as just a sort of frame, what are we going to be studying in, in the sermon series for the fall? Uh, there's a different kind of wisdom presented in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. And we need to get these categories straight if we're going to understand it together. In Proverbs, we find what could be called ideal wisdom. You often see this. It tells you this is wisdom as it ought to happen and as it normally happens, right? Sort of in a closed, frictionless system in a vacuum, this is how wisdom plays out. And Ecclesiastes is wrestling with our lived experience. It's looking at the world as we'll look at next week. We're going to see the end of the matter today as Pastor Andrew opens up uh, chapter 12. But we'll look at the beginning next week where the preacher looks around him and says, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Uh, and things don't happen the way I expect them to happen in the way that, that you would expect things to happen according to wisdom. In fact, here's an example of that. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 says, ideal wisdom, here's the way it should happen, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. This is normally true. Right? This is the basis for the Protestant work ethic. If you're diligent, you will store up good things for yourself. And if 
if you don't eat or if you don't work, neither shall you eat. That's the passage we're going to read in the, in the New Testament reading today. But in Ecclesiastes, Solomon looks around him, he says, So I turned about and I gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by somebody who didn't toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. And so we have, on the one hand, sort of idealized wisdom, doctrinal wisdom. This is our guiding principle. And on the other hand, we have wrestling with how do these things show up in our daily lives. Another example before we move on. Ideal wisdom in Proverbs. Uh, chapter 10, verses 27 and 30. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be moved, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. And if you've read some of the Psalms, you realize, as Ecclesiastes will go on to say, it doesn't always work out that way. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Now, what we need to understand is that there's not a contradiction between these things, but there is rather a practical outworking. Right? There is wisdom, as God has told us, the, the world is and ought to work, but then there is living and working out that wisdom in the futility of the world that has been touched by sin. And that's what Ecclesiastes is, is wrestling with. And as we go through Ecclesiastes, it'll be another opportunity to think about, uh, you know, what does practical wisdom look like? How does it show up? How do we put it into place? Tim, you look like you're... Bro yes, 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 you're right. That's, that's a good correction, yes. Yep. Rob. That's another good example of, of exactly what's going on here. Yeah, Dave. It'll be important, again, this, uh, trying to set up Sunday school, not the sermon, and we'll let, we'll let Andrew set up Ecclesiastes today as he preaches it. Um, but this is something we're going to have to wrestle with as we go through Ecclesiastes, this question of, well, how do we keep from being so cynical, right? Soren Kierkegaard, existentialist Christian, Friedrich Nietzsche, existentialist atheist. And, and they both look, what's that? Nihilism, yeah. We believe in nothing. Uh, and, and so... They both look at their experience and, and interpret it through some lens. Thankfully, Kierkegaard at least has the idealized uh, wisdom and doctrine to help shape and understand and direct what he's seeing. And in the end, that's what we'll see from Ecclesiastes. Andrew's going to preach today from uh, chapter 12, the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. It's the whole duty of man, right? When it boils down to it, there are some things that are, uh, that are frustrating 
that seem vain, that seem like a striving after the wind, and yet God is still true, and his wisdom is still applicable, and we're still called to follow him. Ronnie. Dave, one more comment before we move on. Yeah. Yep. Also in, a, uh, in that camp. All right, here's a long quote where Jay's going to complain about the size of my text. Uh, this is Derek Kidner. He's writing about the wisdom of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. He's talking about wisdom literature in general. How do we reconcile both of these things, both of these extremes? He says, the presence of this kind of material in Scripture invites the man of God to study his whole environment, not simply that part of it which bears directly on the covenant or morality. Now, there we go. We sometimes get in that direction. Well, I, I only want to think about uh, sort of idealized morality, uh, and we lack the skills to actually apply it in our job, in our life, in our family. He goes on, he says, this has an immediate bearing on, at one extreme, the exclusive pietism, which is a recurrent tendency within Christianity. At the other extreme, on the absolute autonomy which secularists claim for human culture. He says those are two opposite reactions against the crown rights of deity, and yet they're not dissimilar in their effects. The former, that is this, uh, this exclusive pietism, the former would shut God in to the narrow circle of worship, ethics, evangelism, and eschatology. And the latter, uh, the absolute autonomy, the latter would shut God out of nine-tenths of the human scene, allowing him no voice in sociology, education, art, science, allowing these realms no benefit of the creator's mind and judgment. So there's Derek Kidner. So to recap, why do we need it? Why do we need to study what practical Christianity is all about? And it comes back to James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What do we do if we have big theological brains and hearts and hands that are unmoved by that theology we say we know? We deceive ourselves. right? It's not a, it's not a matter of fake it until you make it. It's, it's a matter of is it true Christianity or is it fake Christianity? Is it real faith or is it hypocrisy? So he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. All right. That's why we need it. So then the question well, how do we do it? Question uh, for you before we move forward. Is my assessment accurate? Do we, as Reformed Presbyterian types, focus too much on the doctrinal forest at the expense of the, uh, the practical trees? And if so, what are some reasons that you think this is, 
this is the case. Jay? Comfort, explain, please. You look awfully relaxed back there while you're telling us that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Saw a hand. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like a fun toy that you can you can take off the shelf and play with for a little bit and then. Well, but that's the way that we I think that's the way that we can approach it. Uh, it's not what you're saying, but it's interesting, right? It's it's something that we can say. Ooh, I've I've got this, and I can. Manipulate and I can interact with this, but then when I'm done, I can. Okay. Okay. Dave and, and Chris, why is this so? Chris? I would say it's an obligation to me and specifically it's an obligation for the the uh, in form of Christianity to attract people to follow the Allah incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Brian. Yeah, see the class on moderation and food and drink taught by an unnamed person. 
Yeah, I, I saw Scott, and then back to Rob, and we'll move on. Okay. Ex expand. Yeah, if you don't have the action, you can at least say, like the demons do, well, we believe in one God. Yeah. Yeah. I'll trust you on that one. Rob. <laughs> That's a piggyback on what Scott just said. Well, it looks like you have played the game and played well. What is Pastor Kerr thinking? Uh, why doctrine at the expense of practice? Well, let me suggest, as Jay said and Brian piggybacked there, it's because we love ease and comfort. Let me suggest, as Rob said, well, there's a certain pride uh, that, that we can be prideful about this, and, uh, and Chris mentioned that too. Um, and you know, Brian mentioned fasting twice a week, praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And when you start to give people practical advice like that, we can go, you're not one of those fundies, are you? Like, you're not going to try and pigeonhole me into this little box where I have to do all these things. We're afraid of legalism, right? And we think that by just casting off God's commands that we won't be legalists. We don't want to be like those Pharisees. They fasted twice a week, right? They tithe all of their mint and dill and cumin. And so we'll never fast, and we're never going to tithe. We don't have to give anything. That's not practical advice I need. And so it's this, it's this reaction in the other direction. Um, surprise, it's, like a, it's like a sermon. I spent so much time on my first two points that we have no time for the third. Um, so here's Nicholas Bat, uh, Batzig, I think. I think that's how you pronounce that. Um, it's altogether possible for a man or woman to have a head full of orthodox doctrine while having a heart full of self-righteousness and pride. He's talking about legalism. He's putting these uh, things together. When a believer experiences growth in spiritual knowledge or power, he's in danger of beginning to trust in spiritual attainments. And when this happens, practical legalists begin to look down on others and sinfully judge those who have not experienced what they've experienced. Now, we are perhaps in danger of doing that as we have a class on uh, practical Christianity, because hopefully going forward, the rest of our classes are going to be pretty uh, interactional, if that's a word, pretty um, you know, participatory. And, and I want to hear from you when you say, well, here's something that I found that helps me to live out my faith in this area of life. But as soon as we say that, everybody around us can have that knee-jerk reaction and say, is that legalism? Do I have to do, I have to do that? That's how the pastor spends his Sabbath? Do I have to spend the Sabbath that way? Or, or can I figure out how to apply these principles in my own life? And so we, you know, we, we want to 
work on that, and here's Sinclair Ferguson. He says the cure for legalism. There's only one genuine cure for legalism. It's the same medicine the gospel prescribes for antinomianism, understanding and tasting union with Jesus Christ himself. This leads to a new love for and obedience to the law of God, which he now mediates to us in the gospel. And let me uh, jump to the end there. Without this, both legalist and antinomian remain wrongly related to God's law, inadequately related to God's grace. The marriage of duty with delight in Christ is not yet rightly celebrated. That's what we're talking about. The marriage of duty and delight. It's okay to be a Christian and to say there are things that are your Christian duty and to not be a legalist. Paul says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And we say, Paul, don't you have like a, a broader, like a gospel-centered, can't you give us, you know, some deeper meaning to obedience? And he says, yeah, this is right. That's, that's the basis. And we say, Paul, that sounds like legalism. And he says, I don't think so. I wrote it, right? He's the apostle. He's giving us the word of God. And sometimes we can say to one another, brother or sister, you ought to do this. This is good for you. This is a good practice for your souls. And we can do that and not feel like, if we, if we go in that direction, we're going to become legalists. Now, uh, we're going to skip through the rest of these, uh, the how do we do it, because we're going to be working this out for the rest of the semester. Uh, four things, new hearts, open Bibles, folded hands, living wisdom. Uh, we're going to skip the Westminster Confession. You all know it. You have it memorized anyway. It's very practical. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, this is important because we're building a foundation for everything later. Sometimes when we get stuck on these theological circles, we are unable to move in a practical direction because we keep going back to the yes, but, uh, you know, it, it's only through Christ. And we're not going to spend 25 minutes at the beginning of each class telling you that in order to live a Christian life, you have to be a Christian. In order to produce the Spirit's fruits, you have to have the spirit, right? This is the foundation for everything we're doing, so we need to start here, but we're going to move on, but we're not going to move on and forget that we're talking about this. What do we need to live out practical Christianity? We need new hearts. John 15, verses 1 to 5. I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself and let it unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Look at it again and notice that there is a positive and a negative here. This passage is teaching us the, the red section there, if you can see it in my tiny font, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sometimes we quote this section and we focus on those two phrases to remind one another, well, you know, sinners really can't do anything of themselves. And that's true. That's very true. But notice the positive side uh, in blue there, that if you are in Christ, that if you do abide in Christ, there will be something that happens and that's something that happens is you will bear real fruit. Your faith will show up in your life. It'll show up in practical ways. Right? So where do we start? How do we do everything else we're going to be talking about? Well, it's to abide in Christ. It's to have a new heart. It's to be built up on him. It's to be abiding in him. You, could, you can think of Jeremiah 17. 
similar idea. Uh, the one who trusts in man versus the one who trusts in the Lord. The one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water, bears fruit in its season, abundant fruit. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is uh, the, the new promise of a new heart. God says, I will take away your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean. I will make you walk in my ways. What's the outcome of a new heart? Well, we will walk with him and bear fruit. So as we talk about practical Christianity, don't forget that we're starting here. We're not going to spend every, every class coming back to it, but we start with new hearts. Second, we start with open Bibles. This goes back to Romans 12. It talks about the renewal of our mind. Not just our hearts, not just our wills, if we want to think about it that way, not just about what we believe, but about what we understand. And that only comes as God shows us through his word, well, here's what wisdom really looks like. Here's what my moral commands are for you. Here's how the gospel ought to be lived out in your daily life. Uh, we'll skip to Westminster again. Folded hands. Uh, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying for believers who have new hearts that by the renewing of their mind, they would be able to test and approve what is excellent. And we need to do that for ourselves. We need to do that for one another, uh, that our practical Christianity isn't a practical atheism. It's not waking up in the morning and forgetting that we are God's people and going out into the world and grabbing our bootstraps and pulling as hard as we can and trying to be uh, people who live as Christian lives, uh, live our Christian lives in, in front of other people. And finally, living wisdom. Now, this is where I would have uh, a scripture quotation, but I don't, because that's the rest of the semester. Uh, this, is, this is where it's going to get interesting. Hopefully, uh, this is where, for the rest of the semester, we can talk about uh, the issues that we're facing. We can look at the world around us. We can look at what God has given us and help one another, iron sharpening iron, to apply God's wisdom and his principles to our lives. The best definition I've heard of uh, of wisdom, specifically biblical wisdom, is the art and science of steering through life, right? In art, there are things that we can agree on. There are things that are rock solid, right? Green is green. And if you can't see green, there's actually something wrong with your eyes. Not something wrong with the color. There's something uh, wrong with your perception. We can, we can come back to things and say, this is black, this is white. As we apply principles, we're going to be starting there with God's word to say, this is right, this is wrong. But there's also something in art that comes down to personal taste. Now, you might like some of that new modern stuff, and I can't stand it. I might want to take you to the MFA and show you all the, uh, the Flemish Renaissance and want you to see the you know, picture of John the Baptist's head on a platter, because I think that's a wonderful painting. You might say, whoa, that's gross. Uh, and in your situation, as you apply God's black and white wisdom to different shades of gray that you encounter, we're going to disagree. We're not all going to be on the same page on what it looks like to live out our practical Christianity, and that's okay, because we're not legalists. We're, we're not giving a strict, this is what you must do in this situation. We can say, this is, this is what's true in this situation. This is what God has told us, uh, but how do you work it out, and how can I work it out, and how can we do that and learn to do that together? Last quote, and then we're done. Uh, this is from a great little book uh, that brings us back to where we began, Keep in Step with the Spirit, J.I. Packer. In this section of the book, he is contrasting, comparing 
different versions of personal practical holiness. There's one that he says is Wesleyan holiness. There's one that he says is Augustinian holiness. There's one that he calls Keswick theology. And you can get into all those weeds later. Augustinian holiness is reformed holiness. This is the view of the Westminster Confession. So what does it look like? Well, here's what Packer says. Augustinian holiness is not in the least self-reliant. Instead, it follows this four-stage sequence. First, as one who wants to do all the good you can, you observe what tasks, opportunities, responsibilities face you. Second, you pray for help in these, acknowledging that without Christ you can do nothing, nothing fruitful, that is. And third, you go to work with a good will and with a high heart, expecting to be helped as you ask to be. Fourth, you thank God for help given. You ask forgiveness for your own failures en route, and you request more help for the next task. Augustinian holiness is hard-working holiness based on endless repetitions of this sequence. What does it look like to live out a practical Christianity? Well, Packer says, observe, pray, work, pray. And then repeat that same sequence over and over again. I think that's a good sort of basis for us to think about where do we go as we, as we progress through this class. All right, uh, so next week will be our first practical issue to be announced. I'm not sure what it's going to be yet, but I'll figure it out, and then we'll study it together this, this coming week. Any thoughts before we break, because we're already over time? Ora et labora. John. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He's the one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, says the New Testament. And so we can go back and we can always say, well, what, what did Jesus do? The question of what would Jesus do might be more, uh, more difficult, but we can always go back and say, how has he shown us the wisdom of God? And, and how can we... Uh, follow his example, not because we're saving ourselves, but because he saved us and calls us to walk after him. Absolutely. I think that this is a class that, that has the, the opportunity to be able to practice. Good. Me too. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would send us into the world as your people and that we would not pigeonhole our faith in you into some a uh, clandestine place of our lives that never touches anything else and is never seen by anyone. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would send us out as people living practically the faith that you have put into our hearts and working out that work that you work into us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.